Cold Comfort of Silver Lake by Nathan Crowder They passed their child's projected birth date in total silence, Stephen with the novel he was writing, and Anne curled up in a comforter on the couch, crying softly. He saw the look in her eyes, the silent questions. She wondered if it was her fault, and despite the reassurances and platitudes, he found himself wondering the same thing. Gone was the sunny, laughing wife he had known. She didn't sing along to the radio anymore or delight him with bad puns while discussing the news. In fact, she rarely bothered with the news at all, instead pulling deeper and deeper into her shell. More often than not, Stephen found himself wondering if he was in love with her. Was he just in love with who she had been? He told himself that her black moods wouldn't last. Eventually, the storm would pass. After almost a year of crumbling relations, Stephen made one last gamble and put their house on the market, much to the surprise of everyone who knew them. A year earlier, it had been their dream home, with a view of the coast, a brightly painted nursery, and good schools nearby. Now, it was just an unpleasant reminder. Anne rarely left the house, leaving Stephen to make excuses to friends and family as the move approached. Some days, Stephen could almost believe the excuses he made. Silverdale was supposed to be their new start their last chance to save a marriage. Anne and Stephen had driven through the sleepy mountain town on their honeymoon four years earlier and fallen in love with its picture postcard beauty. That night over dinner, they agreed to move there someday when their lives slowed down. Neither of them expected the move to be motivated by the ghost of an unborn child slowly eating away at the foundation of their marriage. He reasoned, that the constant reminder of happier times would somehow revive Anne. At this point, he was willing to try anything that might give him a respite from the sullen moodiness broken only by unpredictable crying jags that could last for days. And the relative seclusion would work to his advantage as he finished writing his latest book. He had been surprised to find that the only home in their price range anywhere close to Silverdale that wasn't a trailer or a ramshackle hut was the old gray Victorian by the lake. Stephen disliked it almost immediately. It sat in the all but permanent shadow of the surrounding hills, with narrow windows that looked out from faded gray walls like eyes on a spinster's face. It had a vaguely cadaverous quality that no amount of sprightly gingerbread trim could disguise. If the last book had sold better, or if he or the publisher had confidence that the next one would take off, it might have been different. Stephen might have risked one of the smaller and more rundown homes that were more expensive because of their proximity to town. He even considered a mobile home on the other end of Silverdale but the hard look on Anne's face made it clear that that would never do. For reasons he couldn't fathom, Anne liked the house by the lake. 
She gasped the first time she looked out the kitchen window and saw a sliver of sunlight on the icy surface of the water. Early April and still frozen, he thought. Even with the sunlight on the ice, the lake looked black and impossibly deep. Look, Stephen, it's our own private lake. Stephen looked at their agent. Valerie was studying her clipboard a little too intently for his comfort, while her teenage son, Hank or something, ignored all of them, lost in his handheld video game next to her. Is the lake private? Stephen asked. Private? Not really, but it might as well be. The lake is on public land, but this house has the only easy access to it. And the access is private. Valerie glanced nervously up from her notes. Not at Stephen, he noticed, but toward the lake. Anne was the most vibrant she had been in over a year, flush with the excitement of starting over. Can I see the rest of the house? That's why we're here, Valerie said, laughing. Stephen gave his wife a quick kiss as she walked past. Okay, hon. I'm going to stay down here for a bit and soak it all in. He waited until the women were well out of earshot, their footsteps sounding on the stairs and then in the halls and rooms above their heads. So, someone was killed here? He asked. That's why it's so inexpensive? The kid looked up, surprised to be spoken to. What? In the house? Not that anyone knows about. You'd think a place like this would be haunted just looking at it from the outside, wouldn't you? Major letdown. With full disclosure, your mom would have to tell me that kind of thing anyway. Stephen nodded, familiar with real estate law by the way of movies and television. How about the lake? Has anyone died in the lake? The kid got a bit cagey. His eyes flickered nervously to the door as he suddenly wondered if he should be talking to one of his mom's clients. Well, that's kind of tricky. Tricky how? Well, you know how the lake got its name. Stephen smiled, trying to put Hank at ease. I didn't realize the lake had a name. Silver Lake. There used to be a road that goes past the house to the Adderson Mine, but it grew over forever ago. One day, the miners broke through into the lake, and like a dozen people drowned. The mine shut down and never reopened. The mine owner lived here with his wife until she vanished. Some people think she drowned, or that old man Adderson dumped her body in the lake. Steve suddenly realized he had stopped looking at the kid and had stepped to the window. Silver Lake dominated his view. Steve felt cold looking at it and had to tear his gaze away. They never figured out what happened to the wife? Hank shrugged. After the mine closed down, they kind of kept to themselves. She was a lot younger than him, and neither of them were what you'd call social. They'd been up here all alone for a few years, just him coming down to pick up groceries and stuff. No one realized she was gone until he died and people went looking. How did he die? Pneumonia, he scoffed, turning back to his game. 
He continued to talk, accompanied by intermittent beeps from the small device in his hand. He died down at the store buying groceries, so he must have been pretty sick to keel over in public like that. The sheriff came up to give the widow the bad news, and he couldn't find any trace of her. Stephen looked back out the window again. He felt his gaze drawn deep into the cold blackness of the lake. It spanned just over a hundred feet at its widest point, and was perhaps three or four times longer than it was wide, more like a lock than a lake. Nothing grew around the gray, rocky shore, but the mountains had a climate all their own. With ice still on the water, he didn't exactly expect to see flowers. But any plant life, a leafless tree perhaps, would have been reassuring. You said she might have drowned? Why is that? I take it you've heard the Adderson legend then, Valerie said from behind him. He had been so consumed by the view that he hadn't heard her come downstairs. Stephen turned around and saw only the agent, a look of disappointment on her face as she tried not to wring her hands too visibly. A bit, he said. Heard that the husband died of pneumonia and the wife was missing, so maybe she drowned. That's all. Visibly relieved, Valerie moved to the window and pulled the curtain cord to close off the view. Well, there was no sign of any violence. If she was killed here, her husband covered it up very well. She had a pair of suitcases under her bed. Stephen stopped Valerie with a hand on her arm. Wait, her bed? Her husband was old and old-fashioned. He might have married her just to take care of the house. They had separate bedrooms. Her suitcases were empty and under her bed. Her shoes were in the closet. She hadn't run away, and if she had, no one had seen her come through town. That's the only way out of Silverdale from here. But they never found the body? They drag the lake, but it's just too deep. Drowning victims... She shuddered, then smiled as if to cover the involuntary response. I heard that they rise to the surface as they start to decompose, but they never found her. Stephen pictured a young woman, naked and pale, bloated like a fish belly as she bobbed to the surface. How long ago was that? It's going on 80 years now. This house has had a succession of owners since then, but none of them have kept it for very long. It was even rented out periodically during the tourist boom in the 70s, but it's been vacant for several years. Stephen paused to listen to excited oohs and ahs from upstairs as Anne tramped back and forth in the room above him. So, the house is in good shape, it doesn't have a history of violence, and it's certainly priced to sell. Your son tells me it isn't haunted. Why so many owners? Valerie bit her lip. She didn't give him an answer, but her eyes flicked back to the closed window. Stephen could feel it, too. There was something about Silver Lake. Something cold, unwelcoming. Something that had nothing to do with the high rocks bordering it on three sides, or the ice on the surface. He doubted that the lake was ever warm, ever inviting. Is the lake safe? Valerie was startled out of whatever deep contemplation she'd been in. Safe? 
What do you mean, safe? It's not poisonous or anything. I hear there are sometimes problems in mining areas with runoff. There was a mine up the way that closed over 80 years ago, and another one nearby that continued off and on up until the 50s or so. There was some concern about heavy metal poisoning in the 70s. The lake overflows into a creek along the northern edge, so they had to test it, but it came up pure. It's just glacial runoff from up the mountain. Nothing wrong with it. But it doesn't get a lot of direct sun, so it's pretty cold. Even in the middle of summer, Silver Lake never really heats up much. A breathless Anne appeared in the doorway behind Stephen, startling him. She grabbed his upper arm for support and buried her face in the back of his shoulder. He could feel her smile through his shirt. Tell me you've already bought it. Not yet, Valerie said cheerfully. She avoided looking at Stephen's hard-eyed smile. Please, said Anne. She put her chin on her husband's shoulder, her breath warm on his neck. You haven't even seen the upstairs yet. It's gorgeous, and it has the most amazing view. Stephen climbed the stairs to see the second story. He didn't feel there was much choice in the matter. He found that the amazing view amounted to an unobstructed view of the black surface of the lake from the wide bedroom window. He thought of a dozen men trapped in the darkness of a mine as their lungs filled with watery death. Stephen saw his wife's enthusiasm, such a rare flower he almost didn't recognize it, and he conjured up a forced smile. It's lovely. He knew his options were pretty limited, so he bought the house. If he denied Anne the first thing that made her happy in a year, he might as well just throw in the towel. Their worldly possessions arrived by truck within two weeks. By early May, they were completely settled, and things started to look up. Stephen had set up his office in the spare bedroom on the second floor away from the lake, and Anne set about instilling the house with a homie lived-in touch. He spent his mornings writing while Anne slept in, and in the afternoon, they went down the mountain and explored their new hometown. But eventually, Anne grew tired of being out in public, and they retreated back to the house, back to the silence of the lake. Early attempts at gardening proved fruitless. There was too much shade for anything to grow aside from choking fingers of ivy that crept around the foundation. The few hours a day when the front lawn got any sun at all left it scrubby and thin. Anne planted bulbs and lavished attention on them, but a month passed then two months, and when they were well into June, there were still no signs of flowers. The only thing that she had planted with any degree of success were a pair of low pine shrubs. They crouched, twisted, and gnarled along the southern end of the driveway, as if mocking her. Her inability to coax life from the ground seemed to be a reminder of the miscarriage, and she slid quickly back into depression. As the days got longer and warmer, Anne spent more and more time in bed with the lake view stretching out past the windowsill. If she wasn't there, Stephen could often find her sitting at the edge of the lake itself on a large flat rock she called the beach. 
She was crying as often as not. She stopped going into town, unwilling to pass through the front door. It was a conscious avoidance of the patch of barren dirt near the front porch where her lily and crocus bulbs lay, stillborn in the long shadows of the mountain. While she slept and wept, Stephen walked on eggshells, fearful of saying something that would initiate another storm. He wanted to help, but felt there was nothing he could do but ride it out. He blamed himself for not stopping Anne when she wanted to start gardening. Nothing grew up here. Even the weeds were anemic. To make matters worse, the ice had thawed on the lake by the end of their first month, and the warming waters seemed to wake in him deep, barely-remembered nightmares. Stephen had been an excellent swimmer as a child, but would only ever swim in pools. There was something about swimming in a pond or lake that always bothered him. The mud under his feet, the water weeds grasping at his legs, the occasional brush of a fish beneath the water. It was all too primal. As the ice thawed, he began to wake in the middle of the night with a strange, lucid dream logic that escaped him in the morning, a sense that he was being watched as he slept. And some nights, he awoke to see Anne framed in the window with moonlight shining through her nightshirt and long brown hair. Her gaze was invariably cast down on the still surface of the water, so it couldn't have been her who'd been watching him. She didn't even turn as he jolted awake in the twisted sheets. He blamed sleepwalking for Anne's behavior. By morning, she was always next to him in bed, with no recollection of having gotten up at all during the night. As an unusually hot July settled upon Silverdale... Stephen's temper became shorter in the dry sauna heat of his office. Several times, Anne knocked on his open door, interrupting his work for the purposes of small talk, to ask him how things were going, to offer to bring up a beer. Or worse yet, she lurked quietly in the hallway outside the room, shifting from foot to foot, saying nothing before turning to leave again. Stephen knew there were things on Anne's mind, things that troubled her. But even direct questions, asked when he found the time between chapters, wouldn't draw Anne's concerns out into the open. The crying dried up and was replaced by a cool distance. When Stephen returned to the shared spaces of the quiet home, he was met with a wave of mild disconnect. It was as if he wasn't even there anymore. Anne took to sleeping on the downstairs sofa several nights a week. She rarely initiated even the slightest bit of contact. Their new beginning felt more like an old ending every day. A month of this disintegration, and no side claimed victory. On a particularly hot day in August, Stephen left the office and couldn't find Anne in the house. The sound of splashing yanked his gaze out the kitchen window and onto his wife's bare shoulders beneath a cascade of wet hair as she swam near the lake shore. Unreasonable horror gripped his gut so tightly that Stephen found himself at a loss for breath. 
before he knew what he was doing, he was out the back door, shouting at her to get out of the water. She looked up, a complicated ballet of emotions on her face, joy from the swim, turning to terror at her discovery, turning to concern as Stephen's ankle twisted in the gravel and pitched him forward. And there, at the edges of her eyes, was a look that held him so rapt that he forgot to get his hands out to catch his fall. It was a look of guilty satisfaction. Stephen couldn't be sure if it was over his fall or the luxury of the swim. When it turned out that his ankle was too sore for him to bear his weight, Stephen had to rely on Anne to drive him in to the doctor. It was the first time she'd gone past the end of the driveway in months. Unless Stephen counted the lake, an incident he was still too shaken to address. The injury wasn't as bad as either of them had feared, no more than a nasty sprain. Stephen was advised to keep off his feet as much as possible for a few weeks. He was given crutches and painkillers. The crutches he could make his peace with as they let him get to the bedroom without help. But the painkillers were another matter entirely. They upset his stomach and made him sleep too deeply. Getting up and down the tight stairway was too much of an effort most nights. He solved that problem by spending most of his time on the sofa, curled up against the rose-colored cushions, while Anne resumed sleeping in the bedroom upstairs. And at night, he dreamt of the lake. In his sleep, the cold water surrounded him, ink-dark. He couldn't even see his feet beneath the surface. In the distance, he saw the house with the midday sun high over the eaves. The sky was crystal clear and perfectly blue. It did nothing to make the lake anything other than dark and unwelcoming. Ancient, hereditary memory of deep-water predators like the shark crossed through Stephen's mind, even if the idea of a freshwater shark was ludicrous. He could not shake the dream logic that sharks or maybe a giant octopus or blind cavefish swam below. If that were the case, he knew he would have no idea until it was too late. Stephen knew he wasn't alone in the water, and that terrified him. All life comes from the ocean, he thought over and over again, the words ricocheting crazily around the inside of his brain. Beneath the water, his toes brushed against something. It was soft, jelly-soft, bloated corpse-soft. They never found the wife, he thought, and he imagined her long hair coiling around his calf, her cold, dead face pressed up against the sole of his foot, he felt her pale nose grazing the arch, her two white teeth caressing his ankle. He remembered the dozen or so miners drowned by the lake waters in an adjacent mine shaft and pictured their fish-belly white eyes staring at him from the darkness below. In his dream, he thrashed wildly about, almost drowning until his brain tried to impose logic over the situation. 
There was something down there, but it couldn't be her, not after all these years. No, it had to be something else. Before Stephen could overpower the nightmare with his conscious mind, the shape beneath his feet writhed against him. A cry woke Stephen from his sleep. He sat bolt upright on the sofa, the sound of his own shout still echoing in his ears. He blinked back the night terror, trying to get his bearings. Anne? He croaked, knowing it wouldn't be loud enough for her to hear up the narrow staircase. Stephen fished around for his crutches and found them shoved halfway under the sofa. He pulled himself to his feet, wincing when his bad foot swung back and hit the edge of the sofa's wooden frame. He hobbled to the kitchen where he could look out over the lake and reassure himself that he wasn't still out there in the water somehow. A quick look out the window showed no movement on the moonlit surface of the lake. As he flipped on the light, he heard Anne stir in the bathroom upstairs. He mapped her progress by sound, the flush of the toilet and quick hand wash at the sink, then her footsteps as she headed for the stairway. He shifted awkwardly on the crutches to see the stairs, cautious of slipping on the hardwood floor in his socks. A cold wetness seeped into his right sock, oozing up between his toes. On the hardwood floor, a single set of Anne-sized footprints led in from the back door, glistening wetly in the moonlight. Are you in here, hon? Anne called down the hall toward the lit kitchen. I had a bad dream and got up for some water. Stephen's voice felt hollow, but if Anne thought so, she didn't say anything. She was in the kitchen only moments later, dressed in her green terry cloth robe, her hair falling limply around her shoulders. It was still wet. Of course it was still wet, Stephen thought. Who else could be tracking wet footprints through the house if not his wife? Do you think you can make it upstairs? She asked. I'll tuck you in all nice and cozy. There was something about her smile that nagged at him. It contained an offer he hadn't seen her make in too long. He couldn't refuse. The trip upstairs was easier once he got going, and once in the bedroom, it was worth the effort. She made the removal of her robe into a striptease for his unasked-for benefit. When she slid into bed beside him, Anne's hands were cold despite the relative warmth of the night. They warmed up quickly as she slid them beneath his shirt to caress his chest and stomach. In the back of his head, he wondered if this was just another dream from which he would wake up at any second. He worried briefly that he might wake before the anticipated climax. Reaching down to make sure that she was real, that this was real, he curled his hand in her damp hair. He was instantly frightened that if it was a dream, it might become a nightmare at any moment. Stephen let go of the hair and wiped his shaking hands dry on the rumpled sheets at his side. Anne's hands explored down across Stephen's stomach. They slid inside the waistband of his shorts to find that he was more than ready for her. She traced 
cold, damp lines down his stomach with her hair. He was transfixed, powerless to stop her. He found himself engulfed in the warmth of her kiss and the cold of her dangling hair. It had been a long time since she had shown him any sign of affection, and now that he had it, he wasn't sure what to make of it. He shuddered as the orgasm shot through him like lightning, hands knotted in the sheets to avoid touching her wet hair again. Anne crawled up next to him like a sleepy kitten, that same sexy, languid smile on her face as she put her head on his shoulder. Stephen didn't move until the sun came up. If he slept, he didn't notice. If he dreamed, he didn't remember. He was too busy remembering Anne's smile. It was an infrequent expression, infrequent enough that he could pinpoint when he had seen it before. The memory sat like a lead weight in his gut. The next day, he fished Valerie's business card out of his desk. She answered the phone with a chipper, Bushnell Realty, Valerie speaking. She wasn't too surprised that it was Stephen calling. You mentioned that there was some local history about this house, Stephen began, surprising Valerie by not immediately wanting to sell the place and move on. He understood that that was how much of her involvement with the house had gone. It has some colorful legends and lore around it, yes. Why do you ask? Who knows the most about local history in town? I remember seeing a flyer for a Silverdale museum or something. Ah, that could be old John. Let me look up his number for you. While Valerie rustled through her day planner, Stephen glanced down the hall to see Anne, dressed only in her robe, heading down the stairs, a towel over her arm. She was smiling contentedly and looked up to see Stephen watching her. She waved playfully. He cupped his hand over the phone and smiled as calmly as he could manage. His smile felt fragile, but he suspected she wouldn't notice. How long have you been swimming in the lake, Anne? Since June, the second week sometime, I think. I'm pretty sure that was when it started to get really warm. Why? Uh, no reason. Anne looked at him strangely and then rolled her eyes. She disappeared from sight down the stairs, about the same time Valerie came up with a phone number. You have a pencil? Stephen wrote down the phone number. It took him close to an hour to work up the nerve to dial and only a few minutes to get the answers he was looking for. He was still sitting quietly in his desk chair in the office when Anne got back from her swim. She fed him lunch, rubbed his shoulders, and even read to him from a book they had been sharing. That night, in bed, Anne came to him beaded with water from yet another dip in the lake. She pleasured him with her mouth again before falling asleep. He didn't try to stop her, although his heart wasn't in it. She lay back against the sheets and fell asleep with that same satisfied smile as her breathing grew deep and regular. Stephen had seen the smile before, though it had been well over a year since he'd seen it last. 
His phone conversation with old John had been rattling around in his head like batteries in a coffee can all afternoon. Oh, she probably did drown in the lake, or her husband did her in and hid the body real well somewhere else, old John had said. It's a shame about the baby, though. Baby? She was well along in the pregnancy. Seven or eight months, I think, but no one really knows for sure. But her husband? Well, he didn't cotton to having a baby around the house. There are some who suspect that she was having an affair and that's why he had killed her. Stephen reached out slowly and placed his hand flat against Anne's belly. He couldn't feel it yet, but it was there. That satisfied smile, that glow. It was her first pregnancy all over again. Only this time, he wasn't the father. He couldn't be. They hadn't had sex since long before moving to the lake. All life comes from the sea, he whispered. He couldn't feel it, the baby, but it was there, growing inside her, waiting. He thought about it, then thought again about that thing in the lake of his nightmares. His mind replayed the image of a bare foot touching something rotten soft under the icy blackness as it scuttled away from him. I may not be the father, he thought, but she's still my wife. We can raise it. He caught himself. Not he or she. It. Rotten, soft, and cold. It would be so easy, he thought. A pillow over Anne's face, a few minutes of struggle, and it would be over. He left his hand on her stomach and cried. Eventually, Anne turned on her side away from him, holding Stephen's hand to her stomach with her own. He hadn't seen her happy for so long. With his free hand, Stephen found a pillow. <laughs>